This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear One Equals One by Anne Carson, which appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2016. Every water has a right place to be, but that place is in motion. You have to keep finding it, keep having it find you. The story was chosen by Teju Cole, whose novels include Open City and Tremor, which was published this year. Hi, Teju. Hello, Deborah. Um, Anne Carson is best known as a poet, a classicist, a translator. Have you been a fan of her poetry and her translations as well? Yes, I'm a big fan of her work. And I think rereading the story and thinking about it now alerts me to not just the fact that she does interesting things within the genres that she works in, but that she's really dissolving genres. Mm-hmm. Um, so that to even think of myself as a fan of her poetry, a fan of her mm-hmm. translations, what I'm a fan of is what she does. Right. Um, and there is a continuity mm-hmm. in, in what she does. So um, this doesn't feel other Right. To, to the right. body of her work. Even yeah. though it's, it's published as fiction, it's That's right. perhaps many things in one. That's right, as is everything else that she does. So I'm, yeah. I yeah. count myself a fan. Yeah. So there's continuity. Um, one Equals One was the first piece of fiction by her that we ran in the magazine. We've since run other pieces. What made you choose this particular story? I remember when it was published, and it was exciting, I wasn't cognizant of seeing anything by her that I would have thought of as a short story. Mm-hmm. And when I began to read it, it just had this, it sounded like Anne Carson, but it also had this cool, strained intelligence to it. She's utterly distinctive. Mm-hmm. It was an excitement for me because in a way it said this also is possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because of everything that she had left out. You could see what was left and see how sturdy it was. This story takes place where? We don't know. When? It's not clear. Who? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so it is brought down to these these few elements. The swimming, the fox, the named character Chandler, the chalk, and then the larger crises in the world. And there was something about this paring down of elements that made me think about Greek tragedy, mm-hmm. which is also about conveying affect through a simple group of elements that interact with each other. Though, as we'll see, the story does not have heightened emotion. No. There are tragedies happening within it. But, That's right. Uh, but the response to them as more of a refusal of the emotion. Precisely. And in a way, it's it's more a stream of, of thoughts and observations than it's a narrative, though there's movement from one place to another. There's a character who does things. And I, I, I remember when it came out that some people just referred to it as a prose poem. And again, did, we have that, that sort of, you know, cross-genre, does it matter what it is? Does it matter what you call it? Yeah. I, it, well, for one thing, it doesn't matter what you call it, but it's also strange. 
um, that people would call it a prose poem because for me this is so clearly a story. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's a story, but it's a story not about what is dramatized, but about how the world is received, and that's a story too. That's a kind of story that interests me very much in my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, stories about how do we respond to what the world is rather than stories that are dramatizing what the world is doing. So it's not confusing for me because the question of poetry, I'm slightly old-fashioned about this, but I think the central essence of a poem is a line break. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I'm very old-fashioned about it. <laughs> it's, 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 it. Before we even get to rhythm before we get to rhyme before we get to vocabulary certainly before we get to lyric image i think poetry has intentional line breaks Mm -hmm. and this does not (laughs) we're we're sticking with fiction this is a story (laughs) yes yes Uh, well let's hear the story now here is teju cole reading one equals one by ann carson one equals one She visits others. Before they're up, dawn, she walks to the lake, listening to Bach, the first clavichord exercise, which she plans to have played at her funeral someday, has had this plan since she first heard the music, and, thinking of it, she weeps lightly. The lake is whipped by wind and tides, big lake, doing what tides do. She never knows, in or out. There is a man standing on shore and a big dog swimming back to him with stick in mouth. This repeats. The dog does not tire. She peels a swim cap onto her head, goggles, enters the water, which is cold but not shocking. Swims. High waves in one direction. The dog is gone. Now she is alone. There is a pressure to swim well and to use this water correctly. People think swimming is carefree and effortless. A bath. In fact, it is full of anxieties. Every water has its own rules and offering. Misuse is hard to explain. Perhaps involved is that commonplace struggle to know beauty, to know beauty exactly, to put oneself right in its path, to be in the perfect place to hear the nightingale sing, see the groom kiss the bride, clock the comet. Every water has a right place to be, but that place is in motion. You have to keep finding it, keep having it find you. Your movement sinks into and out of it with each stroke. You can fail it with each stroke. What does that mean, fail it? After a while, she climbs out over stones, puts on small flippers, re-enters the water. The difference is like the difference between glimpsing a beautiful thing and staring at it. Now she can scream into the way of the water and stay there. She stays. She is one of the most selfish people she has ever known. She thinks about this while swimming and after on the beach in her towel, shivering. It is an aspect of personality, hard to change. Generous gestures, when she attempts them, seem to swipe through the lives of others like a random bear paw 
often making matters worse. And she finds no momentum in sharing, in benevolence, in charity. No interaction with another person ever brought her a bolt of pure aliveness, like entering the water on a still morning, with the world empty in every direction to the sky. That first entry, crossing the border of consciousness into... Into what? And then the, she searches for the right word, instruction of balancing along in the water, the 10,000 adjustments of vivid action, the staining together of mind and time so that she's no longer miles and miles apart from her life, watching it differently unfold, but in it, as it, it. Not at all like meditation, an analogy often thoughtlessly adduced, but rather almost forensic, as an application of attention, while at the same time, to some degree, autonomic. These modes do not exclude each other, so swimming instructs. There is a stoniness. Water is as different from air as from stones, and you must find your way through its structures, its ancientness, the history of an entity without response to you, and yet complicit in your obstinate intrusion. You have no personhood there, and water is uninterested in itself. Stones don't care if you tell their story nicely. Your bowels, your miraculously lucky life, your love of your mother, your well-crafted similes, all are lost in the slide from depth to depth, pure, impure, compassionless. There is no renunciation in this, compare with meditation, no striving to detach all these things, all the things you can name, being simply gone, meaning gone. Her visit ends. Back at home, the newspapers, front-page photos of a train car in Europe jammed floor-to-door with escaped victims of a war zone farther south, people denied transit. Filthy families and souls in despair pressed flat against one another in the grip to survive. Uncountable arms and legs, torn open eyes, locked in the train all night waiting for dawn, a scene so much the antithesis of her own mourning, she cannot enter it. What sense it makes for these two mornings to exist side by side in the world where we live, should this be framed as a question, would not be answerable by philosophy or poetry or finance or by the shallows or the deeps of her own mind, she fears. Words like rationale become, well, laughable. Rationales have to do with composite things, migrants, swimmers, the selfish, the damned, the plural, but existence and sense belong to singularity. You can make sentences about a composite thing. You can't ask it to look back at you. Sentences are strategic. They let you off. She goes downstairs and out to the stoop, hoping it's cooler there. Traffic crashes past. Chandler on the sidewalk, making a chalk drawing. Comrade Chandler, she says, he doesn't look up. What's the drawing? He goes on chalking. 
His gaze is ahead and within. He lives in the back of the house somewhere, speaks not much, draws a lot. She calls him comrade because she'd been reading Russian books the summer she met him, and she thought him secretive. This was an error. Secrecy implies a concern for one's own personality. You hardly ever see Chandler enter a room. He's just there. Or leave a room. He seeps away. Small tide of person, noticed as a retraction. She stands nearer. The drawing is a pear tree. She can see the pears all over it. Small, perfect green chalk globes with yellow cream-white highlights. She wants to lean down and bite them. You've hit the nail on the head here, comrade, she says. He doesn't answer. Once they had a conversation, extending over many months, in broken bits, about mushrooms. He'd said the thing he hated about being in prison was the mushrooms. For several days, she wondered if he meant the food. But it didn't make sense they served mushrooms in prison often enough to be a problem. Or if he had a damp cell with fungus sprouting in the corners. But this, too, seemed extreme. And gradually she understood him to mean he had been able to see a patch of mushrooms, bolitas, from his window, and he used to go hunting for those in the woods with his mother when he was a kid, and it made him sad. Not a mushroom fancier herself, she didn't have anything subjective to say at the time, so she told him John Cage was a mushroom hunter too, and wrote a book about it, a sort of mushroom guide, that she could lend him. Chandler didn't answer. She wasn't sure he read books or knew who John Cage was. Conversation is precarious. Now, as she looks at the very round, chalky, pale pears, mushrooms come to mind again, and she says, One day, as I remember it, John Cage was out mushrooming with his mother. After an hour or so, she turns to him and says, We can always go to the store and buy some real ones. Silence from Chandler. He's adding touches of red to the pear array here and there. Then suddenly, all his five teeth laugh. The laugh slams out of him and is gone. He returns to chalking. Quick enough, quick enough, muttering to himself, and something she can't quite hear. Had a kitscat pretended, it sounds like. She returns to the stoop and stands on the bottom step. Evening now, still hot. Long day, Chandler, she says to the back of his head. He's moving down the sidewalk to mark out a new drawing, red chalk in hand. It will be a fox. He likes a fox at the end of the day. Upstairs, she finds herself thinking again about the failure to swim. It can be quantitative as well as qualitative. Imagine how many pools, ponds, lakes, bays, streams, Stretches of swimmable shore there are in the world right now, probably half of them empty of swimmers by reason of night or negligence. Empty, still, perfect. What a waste, what an extravagance. Why not make oneself accountable to that? Why not swim in all of them? One by one, or all at once, geographically or conceptually, putting aside gleaming Burt Lancaster, Someone should be using all that water. 
Across the level ocean of her mind come floating certain refugees in a makeshift plastic boat, so crowded with passengers, they are stacked in layers and dropping over the sides. She has seen this picture. She has read that larger ships might sail very near, that they might stop to consider the woe and the odds, then keep going. Sometimes bottles of water or biscuits were tossed from the larger ships before they started their engines again. What could she put up against the desolation of that moment, watching the ship start its engines again? What is the price of desolation, and who pays? Some questions don't warrant a question mark. Passengers, to pass, to pass muster, to pass over, to be passed over, to pass the buck, to pass the butter, to pass out, to pass to one's reward. She's eating yogurt when the doorbell rings. Didn't know that bell worked, she says, wiping her mouth with her sleeve as she gets to the door. Comrade Chandler doesn't answer. He gestures with his head toward the street. They descend. Yogurt on your eyebrow, he says over his shoulder as they go down. Oh, she says, thanks. The finished fox drawing is under a street lamp. It glows. He has used some sort of phosphorescent chalk, and the fox, swimming in a lucent blue-green jelly, has a look on its face of escaping all possible explanations. She stares at the blue-green. It has a clearness, wetness, coolness, the deep-lit self-immersedness of water. You made a lake, she says, turning to him. But he's gone. Now it is night off to wherever he goes when he is absolved. She stands a while, watching the fox swim, looking back on the day, its images too strong, and yet the soul. How does it ever get peace in its mouth, close its mouth on peace while alive? To be alive is just this pouring in and out. Find, lose, demand, obsess, Move head slightly closer. Try to swim without thinking how strong it looks. Try to do what you do without mockery of our heartbroken little error. To mock is easy. She feels a breeze on her forehead. Night wind. The fox is stroking splashlessly forward. The fox does not fail. That was Teju Cole reading One Equals One by Anne Carson. The story appeared in The New Yorker in January of 2016. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. 
Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Teju, the story opens with this woman going for an early morning walk. She's listening to the music that she wants to have played at her funeral, and she's weeping a little at the idea of that. What does that set us up to think of this character, that that is the first moment we witness? Hmm. I think there's so much in that second sentence of the story Mm -hmm. that is signaling for us that this is a story about sensitivity. When we hear the word dawn, Mm -hmm. when we hear the word lake, when we hear listening to Bach, when we hear her funeral someday, (laughs) all of that is in one sentence. So it's about interiority. It's about lowering the sensory input to such a degree that something quieter can be heard. That is what the story sets up. The first sentence is more mysterious. Mm-hmm. She visits others. Yeah. <laughs> Who? And this is not returned to, and it's not clarified. So she leaves. Yeah. She leaves the visit. So I think it's just as simple as that. She has friends out in the country. Mm-hmm. And um, she goes swimming in the and, lake. And she goes swimming in the lake. The, the purpose of those others is to be her pretext for being at the lake. Yeah. So the story has so much implied counterpoint that she leaves out. I guess that resonates with Bach also, Mm -hmm. where a lot of it is being completed in the listener's mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And this story is functioning that way. She's giving us a melody to which we're providing a harmony somehow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I when I read it, I also think a little of, you know, who is the kind of person who cries thinking about people attending her funeral and hearing the music she's chosen. You know, there's something. It's actually the only real moment, as we were saying before, of, mm. of somewhat heightened emotion in the story because she's having an emotional response. And in the next paragraph, we get her saying she's the most selfish person she knows. Um, So there's a sense, I suppose, both of of selfishness and of awareness of her responses to other people. I do sense a narrative arc here. It does start with not just contemplation and an absorptive state of mind, but what might be described as Mm -hmm. self-absorption. 
thinking about my funeral, you know, it <laughs> makes me so sad. Listening to Bach, who is kind of like the enthroned center of subtle music or something. Mm -hmm. um, but it is not the only place of heightened emotion because at the very end also, there is that lyric note about not mocking mm -hmm. our heartbroken little error. Uh, Carson is very particular with word choice. Yeah. And she could have done without that reach for heartbroken little error. But because the story itself has been so withholding, when it arrives, it actually does mm -hmm. make the heart race a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a character who has gone from she's swimming, she's thinking about herself, she's a self-admitted misanthrope. And then some of this pain comes in. Mm -hmm. And she has this realization that we're all in it together. And it is, it is pain for others. Yeah. At that moment, it's Absolutely. not safe for herself. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And and I hear her, this unnamed narrator, saying something like, please don't mock me for my clavichord exercise by Bach. <laughs> but also, I want to try to not mock you. I hear her saying, there's a lot of casual cruelty in our world. Yeah. And I don't want to consent to it. So it ends up being quite tender. Yeah, and in the middle, what we get is that idea of of consenting to cruelty or or being complicit with cruelty or not or simply turning one's head away from it. Yeah, kind of at the center of the story, we get this contrast between her morning of peaceful swimming in the lake in a beautiful lake and the image of these refugees crammed into a train, and the story coming out in 2016 was pretty much at the height of the refugee crisis uh -huh. in Europe with um, a million people trying to get away from the war in Syria and experiencing their own horrors. So I suppose the story, the story has a central question for me, which is how do you reconcile being able to go for a swim in a beautiful lake while others are drowning in the Mediterranean and others are crammed into trains unable to get away. The story doesn't answer it or won't answer it directly. Yes. I mean, the, the phrasing is very beautiful. She says, what sense does it make for these two mornings to exist side by side in the world where we live? The reason I think that question is important is because, again, the normal thing is to simply dramatize there's a crisis over here and there are these people who are suffering in this particular way. As if it was something we could just objectively view. But the story as most of us live it in our lives is that these two mornings exist side by side. Mm -hmm. um, while we're having this conversation, there's a horrifying war going on in Gaza. These two mornings exist side by side. I woke up this morning, I made coffee, I got on the subway, I came here for this conversation with you, swimming in the ambience of the city in a very peaceful way. These two mornings exist side by side. That's actually how we live it. And I think even just to pose the question is to admit to our own vulnerability rather than to act as if the only 
area of interest is to fully externalize the, that thing. I think I think naming the contradiction mm-hmm. can be a kind of a beginning of an ethic. There's also the luxury in being the one who's getting up in the city and making coffee and having a peaceful conversation because the people who are suffering, who are crammed in a train or falling off a boat, are not thinking about our morning. That's right. That's right. cannot think about our morning. There are people who are in states of emergency and there are people who are not. And there are different ethical responsibilities and practical responsibilities that accrue to each of those. But I feel that to describe the story in this way, I mean, it's a problem you probably run into quite a bit. One describes stories and they start to sound a bit didactic. And the lesson of the story is. And there couldn't be anything that was less lesson-oriented. It is actually story as immersion. Um, And we are inside the story. She narrates the story. And for a lot of being inside it, what we're thinking about is, again, what does it mean to receive the world? But what is story-making? I mean, it, it was quite striking for me, the experience of reading the story out loud. It was difficult, and not because of the emotions it contained. Because I, I know the story, so I had already sort of processed a little bit of that. Um, it was difficult because her sentences are unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one way in which she is writing like a poet. She is, at every turn, confounding cliché. She is not taking the words where you expect them to go. And when we're reading, actually very often we're reading with an expectation of convention, and that's why we can smoothly read for the first time something we've never read out loud before, because sentences actually tend to behave in a certain way. She's often just, without making a grand gesture of it, She's often surprising the sentence. Yeah. I think it's just, I think it's masterful. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking of you reading the story as as this character trying to swim correctly without yes. failing it. That's right. Without failing this water that you were swimming through. Precisely. Um, One wishes not to fail her, actually. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit of pressure, but it's also really a kind of encouragement from the side of the story saying, you can do this. Yeah. You just have to let go some habits. You have to have, you have to have the right momentum, which is very important to this character. Um, You have to be in the right place in the water and the place keeps moving. And And, and in fact, I found that when I was reading a single sentence, I would tend to make an error, but there would be long stretches when I could read several Mm-hmm. and just flow. Mm-hmm. And it was like being inside it because the run-on sentences, the comma splicing that she mm-hmm. does sometimes, all of that, you got used to the rhythm and the melody of it. Um, if you take a sentence like, you hardly ever see Chandler enter a room, comma, he's just there, comma, or leave a room, comma, he seeps away, comma, small tide of person, comma, noticed as a retraction, period. 
right? Not a conventional sentence, a very beautiful one. Even the that central sentence that you read part of before, what sense it makes for these two mornings to exist side by side in the world where we live. Normally, the sentence would be, what sense does it make for these two mornings to exist side by side in the world where we live, question mark. In this case, the next phrase is, should this be framed as a question? In other words, it has not been framed as a question. <laughs> That's right. And it would not be answerable by philosophy or poetry or finance or by the shallows or the deeps of our own mind, she fears. So we change paths in that sentence several times. That's right. I mean, it's setting itself up to be an independent clause. And it turns out it's actually dependent. Yeah. But when we get to where we live, they're like, oh, that's, that's not complete. It has, it has to be completed with the would not be answerable. I'm going to read the whole sentence out loud so that our listeners know uh, what, we're what, what we're talking about here. <laughs> What sense it makes for these two mornings to exist side by side in the world where we live, should this be framed as a question, would not be answerable by philosophy or poetry or finance or by the shallows or the deeps of her own mind, she fears. It, it's, it's such a strange construction and, and the story is full of them, some quite short, mm. some quite long. There's a joy in encountering a mind that takes nothing for granted. The register is mostly high-toned, but sometimes it gets quite vernacular. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a stream of consciousness in a way. It is a querying mind, and we are almost getting the sentences that issue from this mind in the order in which the querying is happening. Yeah and almost not going back to fix it. So it's it's actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's more Coltrane than it is Bach. Right. It is, it is highly intelligent improvisation. Right. And again, very much about momentum. Absolutely. That's, that's important to her. Um, right after that, that non-question, we get her distinction between composite things like migrants, swimmers, the selfish, the damned, the plural and singularity, and this idea that talking about a group lets you off, that sentences, groups of words let you off, and then the actual singularity of a single person, perhaps a single refugee, a single swimmer, a single selfish person, can't be let off. Yeah. Um, I'm still tussling with the philosophical commitment inside mm -hmm. this thing she's saying about composite things and singularity. I'm not sure it's quite resolved for me. I get a sense more of the, the struggle than the resolution mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. But I know that she's saying something about understatement or saying something about disfluency, which does have to do with these things that she's calling Composite. Composites. Yeah. You know, she's saying that we too easily find what to say. Right. Um, it's easy to, to make a sweeping statement. Right. And the category of the unspeakable is not sufficiently respected. And right. I, th I think I can really sign up for that. <laughs> I think I can really sign up for that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I suppose in this story we have the the composite, which is... Refugees. Yeah. 
and then we have a singularity, which is Chandler. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it's not a mistake that, that he is the only person with a name. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very much a singularity. What, right. what do you think of him? What do you think is going on with him? I think that um, when she... He lives behind... Uh, what, what does he say? Somewhere in the back of the house. Some, yeah, <laughs> r- that's right. She lives in the back of the house somewhere. Yeah. So there's an implication of, of vagrancy... There's an implication of somebody who is part of the community, but it's not even so much about class, but it's about somebody who is engaged in some pretty serious opting out. The narrator is figuring out for herself what does it mean to interact with this person with respect? What does equality look like? An equality that's not coercive. And the way it's handled is is very interesting. I think it's important that when he wordlessly comes up and says, come look at the fox, gestures downstairs, he is the person who, in conventional terms, is disorderly, disorganized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, she's the one who has yogurt on her eyebrow. And he he tells her without looking back. Yeah. It's, it's as the kids say, this is a judgment-free zone. <laughs> you know, the narrator and Chandler... Um, see a certain amount of irregularity in each other's lives and it does not require much commentary. Chandler saves her somewhat from solipsism. Yeah, but I mean, I, he's, he's the one she actually is generous to. Yeah, but he is also saved by her because he has a witness mm-hmm. who is able to enter the witnessing in an unfussy way. And we have the bare minimum. We don't know how old he is. We don't know what race she is. We could do that thing and presume that she's a white lady because Ann Carson's a white lady. Chandler, we certainly do not know what race he is. But we could load it with our own conventional American prejudices and say these are the possible things. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's the implication of vagrancy, there's the implication of prison somewhere in the past, etc. None of that stuff matters, really. No, there's just a moment of connection with the two of them, not not necessarily sentimental, but understanding. You know, she can't do anything about refugees, but she can show kindness or, or understanding yeah, but to if, this one person. But even more than kindness... She can really look at the fox mm-hmm. or, about, or, or really look at the pears yeah. and understand that that is a gift to her, the same way Bach is a gift to her. Mm-hmm. There's something in the world that says, pay attention, and your role is to show up and pay attention. Uh, one thing that, uh, that I was not clued into when this story was coming out but realized on rereading is that moment where Chandler's muttering to himself. Yes. And he yeah. says something... She quick can... enough, quick enough. And then another one that is even closer to gibberish, yeah. I had a kid scared, but ended. Yeah. 
Um, it turns out that's a line from Finnegan's Wake. I was going to say it. Feel, it feels <laughs> very much like a Joycean incursion. Somehow. So if you know now, possibly she's hearing it because she's familiar with Finnegan's Wake, or possibly Chandler is reciting Finnegan's Wake to himself. Yeah, and that throws a whole new light on the narrator having said she doesn't even know if he reads books or has ever heard of John Cage. Obviously. If he's reciting Finnegan's Wake, he does read. So there's both a closeness and potential huge gulf between them in which which she does not right. imagine his life. Yes. Um, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And when you see somebody in dowdy clothes muttering to themselves, they could be a professor of comparative literature <laughs> or an unhoused person. Yeah. And it's not always clear which it is. and Or formally one and now the other. And also, why not both? Yeah. I mean, it is a slightly funny thing about this very intense college town mm-hmm. that also does have pretty stark income inequality. It is a bit of a visceral thing to be a black professor in that town mm-hmm. because there are a lot of black people in that town who are unhoused. But this is all, for me, this is all kind of a a calling to attention about what is it we're doing when we establish these categories Mm -hmm. of who knows what, who is sensitive to what, in what way, um, and what forms of sensitivity matter. Do people have to be sensitive in order to guarantee their humanity? And yet, sometimes people are exquisitely sensitive and their humanity is still not guaranteed to them. And I think the story broaches those questions softly, maybe without taking it as quite as far as that, because after all, Chandler is sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the ways we could query it is to say, is Chandler's sensitivity what gains him admission? With her. And with us. Finnegan's Wake, the fox, the you know. There's no, something no. about him that's so cryptic, right? So we don't we don't know why he's doing what he's doing. We don't know why he likes a fox at the end of the day. That's right. Um, yeah. We know he's an artist. Yeah. We also know he had a mother who went, you know, mushroom picking with him. That's right. Um, he's had a home life. He's had a, a life perhaps more fulfilling than his current one. But who knows about his current one? Yeah. Right? Well, He's not in prison anymore. There seem to be fulfillments there. Yeah. Such as leaving the scene when he's ready to. Exactly. Which bespeaks real freedom. He doesn't have to yeah. sit around and do chit-chat. I wanted to say that one of the striking things about reading the story, which I read in print, hard to imagine it's already been seven years. It feels quite fresh to me. It came with an illustration by an artist called John Gray. And because the story concerns the making of a chalk drawing, and we have this sort of chalk-like drawing of a fox in a swirl of water, for me, this is established as part of the piece. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a complete effect. And a story is not just the words on the page. There is this alluring illustration of a fox that helps pin it in memory, almost as if this is what Chandler made. And then there's the title of the story. Yes. One equals one is the title of the story, but it is written out in uh, 
numerals, in Arabic yeah. numerals, yeah. Um, like a math equation. One equals sign one. This is also part of the freshness of N. Carson. <laughs> How about the title is just math? <laughs> you know, it's just part of her war against cliché. Who says a story has to be titled a particular way? So she says, why don't I just have two numbers and an equal sign? That's a, that's a title, because I say so. Um, what does it mean to confront an other as an equal? I think that's what the title is. Mm. Um, the narrator equals Chandler. The narrator equals Chandler is one possible reading of the title. But another, I think, is when you're swimming, it's one arm mm -hmm. and then another arm. It's a symmetrical activity. And the way to do it is by observing that symmetry. One at a time. One and then one. But by the way, this is all hearsay. This is all guesswork on my part because mm -hmm. I don't swim. But part of what's drawn me to the story is that I I have an imagination of swimmingness. I like to read accounts of swimming. I love watching my partner swim. She'll jump into a lake and swim and find her really bliss in it. I've written books that have people swimming. In Open City, the narrator rescues somebody who's drowning in a swimming pool. And one night, I was in Brazzaville in the Congo, and there were a bunch of people at the hotel pool swimming, and I forgot I couldn't swim, and I jumped in at the deep end, and I had to sort of scramble, and I made it out. In fact, I'm going to reveal something here, which is that I was rescued from drowning in a swimming pool as a boy. Hmm. Um, and that was the seed of that story of the narrator Julius in Open City rescuing somebody from drowning. I was the one who was rescued mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by another boy hmm. who, who was a strong swimmer. Anyway... The point of the story is that in my life there is this confusion of whether I can swim or not. Because in my imaginative life, I'm swimming all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I read one equals one, I'm like, yep, that's me. I'm one of the swimmers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, these are my people. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, I mean, the writing about swimming in this story because um, it's two things. First, it's work. It's, yeah. There's pressure. Yeah. Huge pressure to do it right. That's right. To find the right place, to be in the right place, to do it properly. And then it's also an enormous release. You know, it's a moment where she's absorbed by something without personality, without personhood, where she attains a certain purity and a certain bolt of pure aliveness, she says. But it comes from effort. Um, I wanted to talk about every water has a right place to be, but that place is in motion. I want to connect it to a quotation, Toni Morrison's essay, The Sight of Memory, which is in her um, collected nonfiction. The act of imagination is bound up with memory. You know, they straightened out the Mississippi River in places to make room for houses and livable acreage. 
Occasionally, the river floods these places. Floods is the word they use, but in fact, it is not flooding. It is remembering. Remembering where it used to be. All water has perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. Writers are like that, remembering where we were, what valley we ran through, what the banks were like, the light that was there, and the route back to our original place. It is emotional memory, what the nerves and the skin remember, as well as how it appeared. And a rush of imagination is our flooding. Hmm. That's, that's beautiful. It, it's sort of the opposite of, of Anne Carson in this story, in some ways, because when you're in the water, you have no personhood there. That's and right. Water is uninterested in itself. That's right. That's true. Uh, your bowels, your miraculously lucky life, your love of your mother, your well-crafted similes, all are lost in the slide from depth to depth. That's right. That, that's right. She depersonalizes the whole operation. You lose yourself completely in yes. the water. And Morrison draws this analogy. From Morrison, the, the water is your is yourself. The is water your is a self, and it remembers. Yeah. where it used to be. That's true. It's divergent evolution. Similar phrasing, mm-hmm. but... Um, but the idea, the, the, the personhood there is different. Is, is, is different, yeah. I'll have both. <laughs> I, yeah. I think you can, yeah. right? This is, this is comparative literature. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Going back to the title... Another reading I have of the the one equals one is in counterpart to two plus two equals five or one plus one equals three. You know the uh-huh. sense that you're greater uh-huh. when there's more than one of you. Um, yes, this is just she's one person and one person only. Yeah, mm. um, a sense you can't add to this. It's singularity. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes, when she brings up singularity. Yeah, I think that's also a good reading of that, of that title. Yeah. It's about isolation. Yeah. The fox is alone. She's alone. Chandler's alone. We are one in the world, and whatever it is starts from yeah. being one and respecting that about yourself somehow. I, I agree with that. Um to be alive is just this pouring in and out yeah of that oneself and then and then we have what you spoke about earlier this this decision not to mock not to be sly like a fox yeah um to mock is easy right or hmm i think she's pro fox i think she'll side with the fox's integrity um the fox is swimming without thinking about how strong it looks. Yes. It has no self-consciousness. Yes. And perhaps that's what she's, this narrator is disliking in herself. Yes. This self-awareness. And that's what water takes away from her. Yes. It's certainly interesting that also the story, again, it begins with high culture, clavichord, <laughs> very heady. I think what's important is not that it ends with nature, but that it ends with a measure of abstraction. And it ends with a drawing, another yeah. work of art. Another work of art, but one that is not a cultural calling card. It's, it's not a shorthand for anything other than itself. I, you know, I've tried to write about Bach. I love Bach, and 
It actually shows up with some regularity in my work. <laughs> um, and one can sort of be conscious of the fact that this thing that you love and that you feel a kind of intimacy with is also shorthand for high culture. And it's inconvenient that it's that because then when you write about it, then it's taken to be doing that. Do you, do you know what I yep. mean? Um, yeah. It's a struggle. How to, that, how that, to appreciate without the appearance of pretension. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think there can be some freedom in just the breeze on the forehead, the night wind. Um, and even to risk that lyric gesture of to be alive is just this pouring in and out. To risk the almost didactic list making of find, lose, demand, obsess, move head slightly closer. I think we all know bad poems that make gestures of this kind. And she's saying, I'm going to try to make this gesture right just because it shows up in bad poems <laughs> does not mean that we have to act as if we're past the effort of right. showing up for what being alive is. Right. So there's... Yeah, there's a real earnestness in the story. Yeah, it really reaches me for that reason, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Teju. Thank you very much, Deborah. It was great to talk to you about this. Anne Carson's books of poetry, criticism, and essays include Autobiography of Red, a novel in verse, Knox, Red Dock, Norma Jean Baker of Troy, and The Trojan Women, a comic. She has translated the works of Aeschylus, Sophocles, Sappho, Euripides, and others. A winner of the Princess of Asturias Award, the Governor General's Literary Award, and the Penn Nabokov Award, among others, she's been publishing poetry and fiction in The New Yorker since 1997. Teju Cole, a winner of the Penn Hemingway Award and the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize, among others, is a novelist, critic, curator, and essayist. His books include the novels Open City and Tremor, which was published earlier this year. A new book, Pharmacon, a collection of prose pieces and photographs, will be published in 2024. You can download more than 190 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.